0: Life Coach for Dogs
1: with Tim Cornett. All right. Uh, welcome to the Dog Walkers Companion by Life Coach for Dogs. I'm the Life Coach for Dogs. My name's Tim Cornett. This is a podcast for Cleveland dog owners and only Cleveland dog owner. Northeast Ohio, if, if you're listening to this and you're in Arizona or something, log off now. We will not tolerate that. Uh, can okay. you uh, can you do me a favor and just uh, say your name and your job title and uh, and your sure. and and your specializations and stuff.
0: Yeah, my name is. Uh- Dr. Angela Perry, I am a Marie Curie Research Fellow in the Department of Archaeology at Durham University in the United Kingdom. Um, I am an environmental archaeologist who specializes in zooarchaeology, the study of animal bones and animal remains. Uh, From archaeological sites and my research focus over the last few years has been um, dog domestication, dog and human interactions and the ways that humans have been using dogs in the past, especially in uh, prehistory during the hunter-gatherer period.
1: That's, uh, (laughs) that, that I'm, I'm actually super interested in that because, you know, (laughs) I'm kind of a doomsday prepper. So I always like, think of like, okay, this is going to be get
0: ready with your dog. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Dog, dog skills are going to be my main skill in the post-apocalyptic future. Uh, so I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm always interested in that. Um, what, what, uh, what can you tell me about the earliest, earliest connecting? Um, I, I've I've read, you know, it was always common knowledge that it was the wolf that just kind of came and and was, uh, you know, we we just kept feeding it. But then I've been right. reading more recently that that's that's not necessarily the case.
0: Well, I would say um, that uh, the more we learn about dogs and humans in the past, the more complicated the story becomes um i mean this is the nature of science really is that the deeper you dig into something the more kind of variables and complications you run into and the more people working on it which in dog research we now have uh, a lot more people involved in dog archaeology and genetics um the more kind of opinions you get and the more research uh that people kind of move into the more kind of variation you have and what the findings are and most importantly Uh, about what the interpretations of our findings are. So um, for a long time, uh, there are kind of a number of scenarios of how wolves and, and humans kind of came together to create domesticated dogs. And for a long time, I think that the kind of going story was somehow related to humans taking wolf pups out of dens or finding wolf pups or um, orphaned wolf pups or killing killing the pack or killing the mother and then taking orphaned cubs and or pups back to the camp and then raising them and, you know, then they become a dog. Um, I think anyone who, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who raise wolves in captive um, breeding programs and will tell you that It takes a lot more than just raising a wolf pup um, to make it in any way domesticated. They're still quite wild and rowdy and rambunctious and very difficult to kind of tame. Um, So that was kind of the story for a long time. Um, And then more recently, in the last few decades, kind of other um, scenarios started to pop up, um, specifically this potential hunting relationship between humans and wolves, the fact that, you know, humans and wolves are very similar in their hunting practices. You know, they're they're both daylight hunters who hunt prey species that are larger than themselves and use kind of group pack um, hunting techniques to take down this large prey. Um, and so there's some kind of notion that perhaps being in the same environment, hunting the same prey species, that at some point, instead of being competition, there was the idea, why don't we kind of like band together? How that happened, it's not necessarily clear. Um, but if that was the way it happened, then um, we would have to kind of think about some uh, very interesting kind of canine and human cognition um, uh, steps that would have had to happen to to uh, make that work. So that's something that's still, you know... Um, there on the horizon is something to to look at, especially for king nine cognition people. Um, but more recently, I would say in the last few decades, um, an idea put forth by Ray Coppinger um, is this kind of um, trash pile um, idea of how domestication may have happened which is essentially saying that as humans became more and more settled and stayed in one place longer and longer, that wolves naturally became attracted to their their refuse, um, to the trash and bones and things uh, that they were piling up at their settlements and then um, came closer and closer. And somehow um, a relationship evolved from this proximity um, that turned into uh, kind of domestication. Scenario. So those are the three kind of main scenarios that that likely led to dog domestication.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that last that makes a lot of sense to me because like dogs love garbage, like they love it, and humans dogs love garbage. Yeah, and humans love making garbage. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So you think it like the dog human relationship happened around? you know, around the time that we started, like like you say, settling down, making farms? Or is there any evidence that it's like maybe when we were still like more nomadic?
0: Um, We know for sure that um, dog domestication happened during uh, the hunter-gatherer period. So it definitely predates agriculture. Um, So the earliest Confirmed 100% positive evidence of um, domesticated dog is about 14,000 years ago. So that's well into the hunter-gatherer period. We're not getting into agriculture yet um, in that part of Europe um, where that that, um, skeleton is found. So we're definitely in the hunter-gatherer period. There are some people, one of the kind of most contentious parts of dog domestication research uh, in archaeology is that right now um, genetics only gets us so far. Dogs and wolves are very, very closely related, obviously, as wolf is the direct ancestor of dog. And um, it's not necessarily clear just from looking at the genetics that you can tell the difference necessarily between a wolf and a dog um, and the, the other way we, we look at it is to look at the bones. And, of course, the bones of wolves and dogs can also be incredibly similar as well. And so there are some groups who would say that dog domestication happened um, much earlier in prehistory, closer to 30 or 40,000 years ago. So we're somewhere within 40 to 15,000 years ago um, for dog domestication.
1: Uh, like and on the scale of like you know, you, hu- you know, humans, that's, that. that's actually a pretty big argument. It seems like I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not that smart, but it seems like, you know, it seems like that's probably like the source of a lot of good fights.
0: It, it's, it certainly, um, is a point of debate in dog research. Um, what is a wolf and what is a dog? The real issue, um, comes in, um, determining what would the first dogs have looked like? I mean, the first dogs probably look like a tamed wolf, right? So how do you determine if the the bones that you're looking at are a dog or if they're a kind of proto-dog or if they're just a tame wolf or if they're a fully wild wolf? So this kind of early stages of dog domestication, um, these animals most likely look exactly like a wolf because they are kind of these these tamed wolves. So whether we'll be able to identify the very, very earliest, earliest dogs is kind of questionable. Um, Mostly we think about looking at the archaeological context for thinking about that. So do we see an animal that's been buried? Do we see an animal that has kind of grave goods with it or is in some kind of cultural context that suggests that it was treated differently when it was alive?
1: Yeah. Like what was like, <laughs> when did the first dog get a name, I guess is my, is my big question.
0: Yeah. I mean, that would be really interesting. We definitely have some, some early hunter gatherer evidence of dogs that appear to be cared for because they're clearly in um, prepared burial pits, just like humans. They have grave goods that are left with them, which at that point would be, um, you know, projectile points or arrowheads buried with them or or deer antlers or kind of the same things you see with human burials during that time period. So it, it appears that there's some kind of care and attention and perhaps that these animals were seen as kind of, you know, individuals, members of the family, just like our dogs are now.
1: So like the same way that like our dogs go <laughs> like, like the same way that like a Christian would send like a dog to doggy heaven. Like they had like doggy Valhalla or doggy like pagan goathead or whatever.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could, when your dog dies, just get rid of the remains and just throw it in a trash pile. But instead these people chose to give them very specific burials um, that look a lot like a human burial. So clearly there's some kind of um, emotional kind of social relationship with the dogs beyond just, you know, their use as a tool or some kind of hunting um, assistance.
1: Okay. That's, that's really interesting. Cause obviously we got emotionally attached very quickly like because i mean i i look at my attachment to my dog and i'm like there's no (laughs) way like this it, it comes from like a deeper place i just know that it does like yeah
0: yeah i would say that we definitely seem to have had a close relationship uh fairly early on um the the first kind of earliest confirmed dog is from a site called Bonn-Oberkassel in Germany around 13, 14,000 years ago. And that dog was found in a burial with two humans. Um, and so you can debate whether, you know, it was a dog that was sacrificed to be buried with the humans, or if it was a dog that, that had already been dead and then was included with the humans, or what the purpose of that was. But it, from basically the first kind of, time that we have dog domestication, there's a very close relationship clearly between dogs and humans. We have, you know, kind of ancient artworks, cave paintings, all kinds of depictions of dogs um, and pottery and and various forms. So there's clearly something going on where where people see the dog um, as more than just an animal. Um, It's really interesting that our first, if we think about most of our domesticated animals now, most of the domesticated animals are herbivores. So they're animals that we raise for livestock and we eat. But our very, very first domesticated animal was a carnivore. It's not an animal that that we necessarily eat. Um, it's all, it's a dangerous predator that was probably our competition. So it's really interesting to think about um, our first kind of the first animal that we saw. As not just another wild animal, but as kind of part of our our domestic sphere was, was was a carnivore, was another kind of, you know, animal that was a predator.
1: So you would say that, like, dogs were, like, they were domesticated before even, like, cows or cattle or, like, you know, food sources were?
0: They definitely were, you know, some of those animals weren't, weren't far behind. Um, The cat we know is not long after the dog cat is probably somewhere around 9,000 years ago. Um, And then, you know, once people start settling down um, and start practicing agriculture, then you kind of have an explosion of livestock animals. Then you have cow and chicken and goat and sheep and um, a very quick succession of domestication of those animals um, right away. Um, and I think at some point, of course, you figure out very quickly how you can do this. And when you see a kind of wild animal that you would like to control and start breeding yourself, then you think, well, we've already done it with a cow. We've already done it with a sheep or a goat. So hey, a pig can't be that hard either. And so you know, at some point, they would have figured out, oh, we know how to do this. We've done it before. Um, but the dog was the first, and and there was no kind of model for how you do it. And Aside from the cat, there is no real, I mean, we never again domesticated another animal that was as kind of dangerous and um, as much of a predator as a wolf is. Um, All the rest of our animals are kind of docile animals that we eat. You know, a cat, I I think a lot of cat owners and a lot of people who study domestication would argue whether cats are actually domesticated or not. They're quite self-sufficient in most cases and they kind of do as they please. And, um, they were, you know, they're kind of in their own world. Um, but yeah, never again do we domesticate something like the wolf.
1: That, I mean, that's, that's really fascinating to me because I, I, uh, you know, cause I look at like a farm dog like today, and see how, you know, how they're utilized and they're really important tools. I would assume that they were bred for that, but, you know, to, to realize they were the first domesticated animal, like, um, I'm like, how important was the dog to our,
0: I think that hunting, um, the use of dogs for hunting. I mean, this is one of my kind of areas of, of study is, um, what, kind of the uses of hunting dogs and when and were they first used and how. And um, we have a lot of evidence that hunting was kind of one of the very first uses of dogs. People are clearly using hunting dogs very early on by at least 10,000 years ago. Um, people are clearly using dogs for hunting. Um, but as people's lives changed, as they became settled, as they became farmers and shepherds and um other groups of people um, who became nomadic, kind of pastoralists in Africa, moving groups of, of animals um, across the landscape. Dogs definitely were bred for certain uses. Um, we know that um, certainly you have dogs that are bred for kind of fighting and war dogs. Um, we know that with a settlement of um, of Europe, especially by the the Spaniards, uh, that they brought dogs were who were incredibly vicious, and that they had trained to be dogs that were used for certain purposes, just like we have dogs now that, no fault of their own, are unfortunately trained to be fighting dogs or um, guard dogs or things like this. That you know they select for and increase breeding across this kind of spectrum of a dog that has a kind of natural physical. Um, Uh, traits that they want so certainly you know shepherd dogs there's a reason shepherd dogs are often quite big sturdy dogs that have big thick coats and are designed to stay outside and be kind of um, aggressive towards any potential predators that will be that would be outside and why we have dogs that have been bred to be really good at being um, kind of vermin killers and to go deep down to holes with their long kind of skinny bodies and kill um ferrets or rats or some other kind of um vermin so like
1: our dachshund listeners know exactly what you're talking about they're like listening to this in their car and like they're (laughs) nodding their head right now
0: Yeah, I mean, over time, someone figured out, hey, if your dog is long and skinny or a a little terrier with a little feisty personality like I have, um, (laughs) that they, they, they just naturally want to go after little vermin and kill them. And so, hey, why not just breed these kinds of dogs together? And over time, you know, you get... A certain type of dog you get dogs with um physical attributes that help them live in the cold or swim better or do various things related to what what it is you want them to do so humans are responsible for this kind of incredible plasticity of what a dog can do what it looks like and their physical characteristics you know so we've created dogs that obviously would never be natural in a kind of natural dog breeding environment like pugs or dogs <laughs> yeah. dog with incredibly short faces or things like that. But we bred them that way because we, we like the way it looks or it does something that we want it to do.
1: Well, now that you mentioned the pug, um, now uh, can, what can you speak to about like how dogs, uh, and, and humans interacted culturally, like from culture to culture. Cause I know pugs, pugs come from an Asian culture. I know, you know, uh,
0: yeah.
1: What, uh, what are some of the like more cultural differences in how we how we approach dog dog raising
0: yeah so there's definitely um, some variation uh, across the board i would say that especially in prehistory but even now environmental Um, issues kind of are a a lot of what we do involving dogs has to do with what environment we live in and what cultural context we live in you know so I do field work in Kazakhstan and in Kazakhstan um, you know people are raising um, sheep or have horse herds and they're moving them they're pastoralists and they're moving them across this kind of flat step landscape um, and Kazakhstan has the second largest population of wolves outside of Canada. Lots and lots of wolves in Kazakhstan um, that are potentially dangerous to um, flocks of sheep or like horses or things like that. So um, a lot of kind of nomadic pastoralists in Kazakhstan have big, large um, dogs there to help protect their sheep. and. When I was there, a lot of people who were who had these dogs told me that it's not uncommon for them to intentionally breed their dogs with Kazakh wolves to make them kind of tougher dogs to then fight against the wolves that may attack their their flocks. And so um, that's very different than the average person, you know, who lives in the U.S. And is trying to keep their dog from being attacked by coyotes or wolves or some other kind of animal. So um, I think that really our culture and the environment that we live in really determine how we interact with dogs. You know, there's, there are cultures now and there always have been in the past where dogs aren't seen as a kind of social domestic animal and they are a food item. And we have lots and lots of evidence going all the way back to the beginning of dog domestication um, for people consuming dogs um, or killing dogs in times of, um, of hardship where they can't afford to feed the dogs anymore. Um, and in a lot of cultures, eating dogs was a quite common um, occurrence and they didn't see dogs as any different than you know any other livestock animal. Um, and of course, we still have that that today. And a lot of people, um, who are dog fans are, um, quite upset about that. Um, but it is something that has been part of the human dog relationship for a long time.
1: Yeah. I know our listening audience, we, we, uh, with our, our Balto episode, this came up too, because you know, sometimes you, some when things get bad, sometimes you have that, to eat your dog, I guess. I mean, yeah. that's, that's been a constant, uh, Yeah. yeah. You know, so but that's, that's an interesting thought that like that some people like came and they're like, they just weren't as moved by dogs. They're like, I'm not letting good meat go to waste.
0: Yeah, that's certainly I mean, if you read um, kind of early American uh, explorers, um, Lewis and Clark, for example, going across the West, um, you see lots of text evidence of in some places where, um, certain native groups were eating dogs regularly and Lewis and Clark participated in that. And then other native groups who thought it was absolutely abhorrent and a disgusting practice and couldn't believe that Lewis and Clark were doing that or any other, I mean, the Spanish, um, invaders were famous for eating, eating dogs, um, as they, Traveled through the Americas and ran out of food. Um, I didn't know and, any of this.
1: This is yeah, fascinating. And so
0: yeah, so I mean, um, and lots of lots of Native American groups recorded that they were just disgusted by the fact that the that these European um, groups were so easily taken to eating dogs, which they felt were kind of just part of their you know their culture and were kind of pets to them. Um, And then, you know, vice versa, you have some explorers who said, you know, I would never eat a dog, but these groups uh, invited us to participate in in a dog feast or something like that. So, you know, it's really, really, really cultural and it can can vary just within a very small space of time or space um, geographically as well really it really depends and um i think that groups that find some use for dogs that have either a a very close emotional attachment to dogs or use them for hunting or you know you probably heard it in the previous episode that um the arctic is a very interesting place for dog Um, human associations because, of course, they're highly dependent on dogs in some regions for sled travel. Um, But the moment things become difficult, you may have to kill your dogs um, because you can't afford to feed them any longer, or you may have to eat your dogs. So, you know, it's a really environmentally, culturally based um, association on how people are interacting with dogs. I'm a big fan. I have lots of dogs myself, so I certainly understand The outrage um, associated with, you know, modern groups of people who are raising dogs for meat and the conditions in which those dogs are raised. Um, But it is very much a Western-based attitude that you don't eat dogs, that dogs are pets, that dogs are part of our household. Um, And... And it's certainly not related to the past at all because dogs are certainly eaten across the world in in prehistory. Um, so it's a fairly new kind of thing to have such a, a strong aversion um, to not consuming not consuming dogs. So, yeah, it's it's just really interesting. It's really based on what our kind of cultural interactions with with dogs are.
1: That's fine. Because we don't, you know, like I say, we don't breed dogs to like herd anymore because we don't need that. We breed dogs to love us because that's what we need. We're lonely. So the idea of like eating a piece of my heart, you're like, you're, get away from him, you monster. Like that's. Yeah, but there's
0: there are certainly, um, there are certainly people who are still using dogs as working dogs, people on farms, shepherds, things like that, who interestingly have a really different relationship um, with their dogs and often see their dogs um, more as a kind of a tool, like a, a technology that they use to help them in whatever it is that they do, whether it's farming or keeping their sheep safe or um you know, helping them transport things. So it's really interesting the people who do still use dogs and um, kind of working conditions, how their relationship with a dog is often very different than, you know, my relationship with my dogs, which is um, my dogs are complete outside of the emotional um, connection I have with my dogs, they, they don't really do anything, do they? They, like, I really spend all my time and money and energy pleasing some very very pampered Westies. And what do they do for me? I don't know. I mean, they they cost a lot of money. They have a lot of attitude, but they're emotionally, you know, necessary. I must have, you know, my Westies. And so it's a very different relationship than people who are using dogs as kind of working tools.
1: You know, uh, listeners by this point will know that I, I bought my dog from a, from a farm. His, his parents were, uh, we're working dog. He's a great Pyrenees. He was, you know, raised uh, yes. goat. So he's like, you know, he's a, he's a guardian. He's a guardian yeah. dog, which I try and apply into a more urban setting of where I am. But, uh, now we're, while we're, while we're on the subject and we just have a few minutes left and you are talking about your dogs. Uh, you say <laughs> you have, you say you have Westies.
0: Westies. Uh, the
1: best. <laughs> Westies yes. are the besties. Yes.
0: Uh,
1: now, how how do, how does your work influence how you are as a, as a dog owner? Does it make you does it make you more informed, or are you just is there just a complete disconnect?
0: You know what I am just like every dog owner who is closely attached to a certain breed, certain type of dog. I desperately want something very special and unique to be related to my Westies. Um, you know, every time new research comes out. I always want there to be, you know, something amazing revealed about Westies. Um, I'm, you know, I, of course, think that the Westies, Westies are the best breed and that everyone should have a Westie. Now tell Um, me about
1: a Westie. I don't, I don't see a lot of those in my work.
0: (laughs) Well, I would say a Westie is probably the best example of the terrier attitude. Really kind of, they can be really feisty, full of attitude, full of opinion, quite independent, not necessarily like a lap dog that wants lots of cuddling. They're quite, you know, a feisty, independent dog. But, like, if you're a person who likes an attitude dog or a little, like, sass in your dog, a Westie is really for you. They're also, um, you know, they can have these kind of um, predator tendencies. They really like to go after, you know, they're raised in Scotland um, to to kill off vermin, small kind of rodents and various small animals um, that got into fields and things and made holes that, that were bad for the cattle or the sheep or whatever. And so, you know, they got a little feisty attitude, but you know, like everyone, I want there to be something really special about the breed that I love. And, you know, I sometimes look at my Westies and think like, oh, I can see the wolf in you. You're just like a little wolf. (laughs) So, you know, I, 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 know that my dog is a product of a lot, a lot, a lot of very intentional breeding. Um, But I think everyone, even, you know, a person who owns the smallest Chihuahua, sees this kind of wolf spirit in their dog and really kind of, um, I mean, maybe for a Chihuahua owner, it's quite difficult to think about their Chihuahua coming from a kind of wolf ancestor. But um, yeah, I think that everyone who owns a dog, at some point, has, gets the feeling I mean essentially we're doing something that is incredibly strange. We share our lives and often give tons of time and money and energy to this creature, which is essentially a predator, a, a carnivore that we've domesticated living you know in our living rooms, which is pretty amazing.
1: It really is and I think that a lot because I personally I'm a vegetarian and my dog obviously is not so right. <laughs> it's, at this point I'm making sacrifices for my dog. I, I won't even call it a sacrifice, but I am doing things for my dog that I would not do myself. And it's, it's interesting to me to think that people at the earliest stages of human civilization, like when, you know, we still had hair on our knuckles and stuff or more hair on their knuckles. in, in my case, uh, you know, we were like, we need this, we need this dog or we need this wolf or we need this alternate in between dog X creature.
0: Yeah. I mean, I will say for listeners who are thinking a wolf is not a carnivore. It's true. A wolf is an omnivore. And I know many people now who are vegans, vegetarians who, um, insist on feeding their dog, a kind of vegan or vegetarian diet because they're omnivores. And, and, and I think it can be done and I know people who do it well. um, but, uh, yeah, so if you're a vegetarian, and you want to make your Pyrenees a vegetarian, it is possible. It is possible. It's not ideal. It's not ideal, but it is but it is possible. You know
1: um, Wow. I've I you know, I've I've never actually heard anybody come out in favor of it. So I might you know, I might just keep calling you uh <laughs> for a new. I,
0: well, I suggest actually that you have a conversation with my friend Isla Fishburne, who is um also here in the UK and is a specialist in um natural feeding and dog. I mean, she knows all things related to, like, dog health and raising a dog based on, like, a wolf-based kind of living environment and diet and things like that. And she's amazing when it comes to, like, understanding dogs as just a kind of domesticated product of of wolves. Um, so she's she's really great. And she would tell you never to make your dog a vegan or a vegetarian. <laughs> um, but she's got a lot of great information, so Oh, will get that. I w- from me
1: afterwards. <laughs> I, I sure will. That would be, uh, that would be super great. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I'll go ahead and let you go. Uh, okay. is there, a uh, thank you so much for, uh, no, no for, uh, agreeing to do this and I'll, uh, follow up with, uh, with an email to get, the to get the emails and, um, the email of, uh, of the one nutrition doctor. Cause I that love, sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'll make okay. sure, um, you know, just to make sure that the bio stuff is right too. I want to make sure that like, you're uh, credited correctly. This yeah. this has been really wonderful. I think our audience yeah, is going to get great. a big uh, kick out of it. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much.
0: No problem. Great. <laughs> thank Talk you. to you later. Talk to
1: you later. Bye. Bye. Hey, kid.
0: You want, to, you want to hear a story? Why not? It's about how awesome these dogs are. Okay. See? Dogs. Dogs, dogs are awesome.